so you can turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I'd ask you a question, and that is, have you ever heard a directive from the Lord, and you know it was the Lord, and it was a very clear directive, and he wants you to either do something or go somewhere or accomplish something, but that task and that thing that he wants you to do seems so absolutely impossible to you, you wonder, how in the world is that going to take place? How in the world are you going to use me to do that? If that has happened to you, you are not alone. Have you ever had a lot of plans where you've planned a, a bunch of things? Do you know, I think this is true. I think many of us are planners to some degree. Would you agree with that? I mean, you may not be the person that plans everything, like plans your meals and your outfits and what you're going to wear and, and plan all those things, but perhaps you are, and that's cool. I definitely don't plan my meals. I love to eat, and if I see something I like, I grab it, even when I'm not supposed to. I wasn't supposed to eat yesterday morning until, or I wasn't supposed to eat yesterday until noon. That's a rule I've given myself. But I've found that rules that I give myself, I also break myself. So I had one of those lemon loaves. I love lemon. Whew. Have you had those lemon loaves with icing on top? Oh, man. They are good. So I broke my rule, and I had one, right? I didn't plan that, but it happened. But the bigger things in life, we do plan, don't we? We plan what we want to do and where we want to go and kind of where we want to be financially at some point in our lives and perhaps a job that we want to look for or a house to buy. And these big things in life we plan. And, you know, it's something the Lord's laid on my heart because I had a lot of plans, even as recent as five years ago. I had all these plans. And we're going to do this. And when this happens, we're going here and we're doing this and we're doing that. And Proverbs 19 tells us that there are many plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. Amen. Has that ever happened to you where you had all these plans and all of a sudden the Lord says, hmm, no, no, we're going to do this. And you find yourself in a situation where you go, wow, all my plans are changing. And I don't necessarily have clarity on what you're doing, Lord. Has that ever happened to you? Or perhaps you know exactly what the Lord's laid on your heart. You know exactly what the Lord is wanting you to do. He's given you that. But he didn't give you all the steps along the way. See, that's what we like, right? We like, we're planners to a certain degree, all of us are. And we like to have the steps laid out before us, right? We like to see those lily pads kind of all surface at once so we know all the ones to jump to. And that's not how the Lord works, is it? He gives us a directive. He commissions us for something. And then he says, okay, you're going to trust me? And we go, oh boy. Uh, yes, because we're good Christians, right? And we trust the Lord. And we know that's what we're to do. But there's that little bit of fear in our hearts, and there's that little bit of doubt that can rise up. Why? Because we're human, and we don't always necessarily, you know, just like go carte blanche and just go for it. But sometimes that's what the Lord would have us do. The title of the message today is Get Going and Trust God. We're going to look at a guy who this is exactly what happened to him. Gideon is the, the man of our story. 
he got a directive from the Lord. And it was very clear. It was very clear to him what was going to happen and what was going to take place. The Lord told him. But he didn't get all the steps. There wasn't a lot of clarity of how that was going to happen. And we'll see how this unfolds in our story today. You're there, Judges chapter 6. We have some verses to cover because you just can't skip a whole lot when you look at this story. You guys know what happens in the end, the battle that he's going to be uh, a partaker of and as he takes his men to battle and what happens. We'll get to that in a minute, but we have to have some insight on what's going on with the situation beforehand. About 200 years before our story, Joshua had led the people uh, into the walls of Jericho. Remember, the, they marched around the, the walls of Jericho, and they all come crumbling down. There's a little nursery Bible story uh, song that the kids sing back there. Have the, the, the walls all come tumbling down, and, and they marched right in through the walls into Jericho. And not only did they march through there, but they also marched all through the land of Canaan. And that was a directive given to them by God to go and clean out the land, clean out uh, the, the promised land that God had given them of all of the pagan cultures that inhabited that area. Oh, they had centuries to turn to God and to do right, but they refused. And so now it was time to deal with this. And God was using his people to do that very thing. The problem was this, that... They didn't completely obey and they didn't completely cleanse the land of these people. So in other words, there were pockets of paganism that still remained. Oh, they did the vast majority, but these little pockets of Jebusites here and Amorites there and these pagan little pockets that were left and that remained, well, 200 years later, these populations grew. And they grew to a point that when they would band together, they would quite literally become a major enemy of the people of Israel, God's people. And so that's kind of where we're at here. This place, is, this has taken place. And it says there, chapter 6, verse 1 of Judges, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Who's Midian? You guys might remember back in Genesis chapter 25, Sarah had died, and Abraham married another woman, and her name was Keturah. You might remember that. And he had many sons by this woman, Keturah, and one of them was named Midian. Well, the promised son, Isaac, was kind of getting harassed and pushed around by these brothers. And so Abraham said, okay, you know what, guys? You got to go. So he sends these sons away. He sends them eastward. Go and do your thing. And, of course, years later, Midian uh, was uh, the father of what would then become the Midianites, who later became the enemy of Israel. And so that's where we find ourselves here. These children of Israel, they did evil in the sight of the Lord again. 
Remember we talked a few weeks ago about how sometimes we fall into the same sin over and over again. We don't want to, that's not our intention, but we just do. In the weakness of our flesh, we find ourselves committing the same sin or the same mistake over and over again. And one of the problems that the children of Israel had during this time was they kept finding themselves susceptible to pagan God, uh, worship of false gods. They just did. And it needed to be cleansed from them. So they would do this and they would get to a point where the Lord finally said, okay, you know what? I got to deliver you into the hands of your enemy because I need you to call out to me. They wouldn't cry out to them. And this happened for seven years. As we get into this text, you'll see. Verse two, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens and the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains, quite literally, they were so terrified by this, this force, this evil, nasty enemy. And by the way, they were, they were brutal. They were fierce, the Midianites were. And they would, these children of Israel, they were so fearful that they would hide in caves and crevices and they'd hear them coming and they'd flee and they'd run and, and go hide. Verse three, and so it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. These are all people that should have been completely, totally wiped out. But they weren't. They were little pockets here and there that remained, and over a couple of hundred years, guess what? They grew to quite vast numbers, especially when they would band together. And they would come in at harvest time. Can you imagine how frustrating was that? This is an agrarian society. They grew their own food. I'm not a farmer, but you know we've all tried probably at some point in time to grow something. Usually you have a plant in the patio and we end up killing it because we're not very good at that stuff. These people were very good at this. This was their livelihood. They would till the land. They would work the land and prepare it for seed. And then they would put the seed in and then it was like this. You gotta wait, right? It's gotta germinate and it grows. But then when it grows, it sprouts, it's not ready yet. It has to produce whatever it is that you have planted, the fruit, if you will. That takes time and effort. And then finally, the harvest. And that's no easy job either. That's a lot of work. This whole endeavor is very labor intensive. It took time and patience and praying for water and rain and all of these things. And finally, finally, the harvest comes. And you work so hard and you finally gather the grain, you gather the fruit, the vegetables, whatever it is. And guess what? Just about that time, the Midianites find out. Oh, cool. Thanks for all the hard work. And then come storming in and they would ravish them and they would take all of that harvest. Quite literally, it shows here that they were left in poverty. Verse four, then they would encamp and get against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land and destroy it. Yeah, just about the time all the hard work was done. All of the time and the effort that was put into 
just have something to survive on. They'd come in like locusts, it says. And it says they're like camels, too. That's interesting. They bring their camels in. And it's interesting because the Midianites, it's believed by historians that they are the civilization that actually domesticated the camel. Kind of interesting. You ever seen a camel? You ever been around a camel? Raise your hand. I want to see. Stood next to them? They're enormous. Yeah. They spit. They're gnarly. They're, they're weird things. But they're actually very agile for their size. And these Midianites, they'd get word, oh, the harvest, oh, good, let's go get them, boys. And boy, they'd mount up on these camels and come swooping in, and they'd gather all of that stuff. And it says there they'd take all the sustenance that Israel would have and quite literally left them for starvation and left them in poverty. And what does it say there, verse 6? So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and that's what the Lord was waiting on. How long? We're told back in verse 1. Seven years it took. After year one, I'd have been like, okay, Lord, I'm done with that. It's kind of like payday. You work all week or all month, however it is for you, and you work so hard, and you get your check, and you leave the doors, and guess what? There's these guys. What you got there? Uh, my paycheck. Yeah, you're going to hand that over. <sighs> It'd be like that for us today. All that work, all that effort, and gone. Now what do I do? After year one, I think most of us would have had enough, but it, there's just something about it. There's something in our human nature that we think, man, I can fix this. I got this. And after seven years, finally, which by the way is the year of completion or perfection, they finally cry out to the Lord and the Lord's like, okay, that's what I was waiting on. Okay, now we can help you. Now I can help you. They cry out unto the Lord, the frustration the living in fear, running to caves every time they heard uh, the sound of their enemy, quite literally living in fear. Now, we're going to jump over to verse 11 for the sake of time. Jump over there with me. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So this was a practice. A, a practice of threshing wheat would normally have been done in the outdoors, perhaps outdoors in the open, maybe a little bit of a higher elevation because you're looking for wind, right? They'd throw the grain up in the air and then the wind would blow the chaff away and the good kernels would fall to the ground. That's what you wanted. And so that would have to be done out in the open where the wind would uh, help you out. But he knew that if he did it out in the open, guess what? The Midianites would see and they'd come tearing in and take whatever he had that he was working on. This, this wheat, he would take that. So he's doing it in a wine press, and where's that? That's going to be like in a more enclosed, lower area, hiding, quite literally hiding from the enemy. There was fear. These, these people were fear-stricken. In verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O you mighty man of valor couple things here. One, it says the angel of the Lord. Notice angel is capitalized. 
This is what we know to be uh, called a Christophany. Or in other words, it's an appearing of Jesus Christ to uh, men and women in the Old Testament before he actually came to this earth as a man to die on the cross for our sins. But in the Old Testament, he would do this. He would appear to certain people. And it says the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord, angel is capitalized, we know that to be uh, Jesus himself. Jesus himself shows up and says to him, Oh, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon must have said, Me? You're, you're talking to me? I am a farmer. <laughs> I, I'm just down here in this wine press hiding because I'm scared to death. I'm, I'm, I'm threshing this wheat because I, I don't want my enemy to come in and take it from me. Uh, my knees are shaking and I'm, I'm quaking, scared to death that they're going to come in and do what they always do to us. You, I'm a mighty man of valor. You know what's interesting is that the Lord sees Gideon not in the situation that he's in, not in his present state, but he sees Gideon in who he's going to be. And that's what the Lord does with you and me. The Lord calls and he says to you, he puts a thought in your heart and in your mind, and he gives you direction. He says, you're going to go here or you're going to do this. And you go, me? How? That's not possible. I'm, I'm just a man. I can't do that. And the Lord says, no, you will do that because I see you of who you are going to be. He doesn't see you in your current state or in your current weaknesses. He sees you through an eternal lens, how you will be in eternity. And that's what's happening right here. He sees Gideon. He already sees the finished product. And the work he's doing in you and me is not finished. Would you agree with that? Are you a finished product today? No. And neither am I. We're not finished. But God sees us as though we are. You mighty man of valor, verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Lord, if this is true, then why is all this? If you're with us, why is all this happening? We do the same thing. Lord, man, I, I'm reading about all these miracles in the Bible, and I'm reading about all this stuff that you've done and all these things. How come you're not doing that in my life? How come you're not empowering me? How come I'm going through all the things I'm going through? Well, what's the answer Jesus gives here? Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Jesus answered the question by not answering the question. That's not the, he, that's not the answer Gideon was looking for. He's like, well, if you're with us, then where? And we do the same thing. We're like, well, Lord, if you're with me, then how come this has happened? And why that? I read all this stuff in the Bible and how you've delivered them. How come it doesn't feel like you're delivering me? And what does the Lord say? Go do this. What the Lord is doing here is he's saying, hey, Gid, it's not about you. It's about me. 
It's not about who you are, it's about who I am and what I'm going to do through you. You know what the underlying message in this whole story is? Is that God wants to do something impossible to us. He wants to do something incredible and he's going to use a man. But in the end result, guess what? He's gonna make it seem so impossible, but he's gonna get the glory for it. And that's what it's all about, is God getting the glory. And we're gonna see in the next chapter exactly how that plays out. It's not about you, Gideon. It's about me. The time has come. My timing is perfect, but I'm gonna use you. And that's what the Lord would say to you and me as well. I wanna use you. You know the Lord wants to do something amazing in your life? In fact, he probably wants to do many amazing things. What he needs is you to be willing to obey. He needs you to be obedient. He needs you to hear his voice. And he needs you to step up and get moving when the time is right and when he tells you. And he needs me to do the same thing. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to take that step? Or do we have to have all the lily pads lined out so I know which ones to hop to when I'm supposed to? Because we're planners. Or am I gonna take that leap of faith? Am I gonna take that step? Am I gonna get moving even when things don't seem very clear yet? That's what we must ask ourselves. Verse 15, and so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midian, Midianites as one man. I'm with you. Oh, how can I? It's not about you. It's about me. I'm going to do an amazing, incredible work that no one would ever believe you guys could pull off by yourself. And it's gonna end up in a way that only I will get the glory for this because the Lord deserves that glory, does he not? He's gonna do an amazing work. Now we're gonna jump back over to verse 22. First lily pad shows up. Verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was, that uh, he, capitalized there, was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In other words, he's worried he's going to die. He knows scripture. The Bible says uh, no man sees God and lives, but who did he see? Not God the Father, he saw Jesus. And Jesus presented himself many times. And the Lord said to him, verse 23, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and second bull, or seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden images that is beside it. Did we hear that right? His father has Baal erected near his home. And the wooden images there, or Ashtoreth, the Canaanite goddess, 
that would be one and two uh, false gods that would be worshipped at that time. This is, this is the father of Gideon. And the Lord is saying, oh, uh, go to your dad's place and you've got to tear all that down. He's going to start doing a work in Gideon's life. See, we're, we're getting the first lily pad here. I'm going to do a great work, but before that happens, we've got to clean house. You've got to go deal with family. Oh, that's always fun. You know, the biggest ministry that you and I have is our family first. That's where ministry begins. We start with family. We start with our kids and sometimes our brothers and sisters, cousins, whatever, but moms and dads perhaps. And a cool thing is going to happen here. He's got to go deal with his dad, and so he's got to go tear down the bale that Joash has erected. Verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the word, or excuse me, with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. Ooh, obedience. Nice. How's this going to play out? He doesn't know. But he's been told, he's been given a directive, and he says, okay, fellas, come with me. Let's get started. But watch this. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. <laughs> still a little bit of fear going on in him. It's like, I'm going to do this, but I'm still kind of scared. He's not just like, all right, let's go head on her. He wants to obey. He's willing he gets some guys together, and let's go do this, but let's wait till dark. Let's go do it at night. Is that okay? The Lord knows. The Lord understands that. He's getting it done, and he does. He goes in by night. Verse 28, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden images and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar, which had been built. Second one still smoking. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Now watch this. This is a mind blower. This will give you an indication of how far the children of Israel have drifted from the Lord. Verse 30, And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. What? Gideon did a good thing here. Gideon stood up to society. Gideon stood up to what was going on in the culture. He's trying to right things. And where did he start? With his own family stood up to his dad, stood up to society, stood up to culture. That's how far entrenched these people were in pagan worship. And it didn't matter how many times they got attacked by the Midianites, they still had their own bales in their backyard. Wow. And so upset when they woke up that morning and saw the bales uh, torn down and the wooden image next to it cut down and Things still smoldering and destroyed. They got so upset. Hey, bring out your son that he may die. But watch Joash. He says what we're all thinking. 
Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? That's right. He says what we're all thinking. He's like, wait a second, hang on. Are you gonna fight for Baal? See, something very interesting happened. Deep within Joash's heart, it was stirring because he realized his own son stood up against him and righted the wrong. Joash had found himself susceptible to culture. He found himself even falling into this paganism. Once a worshiper of God, once a worshiper of Yahweh, but through time found himself even erecting a Baal and the wooden image. But now Gideon took care of all that. And something stirring deep within him, almost like a relief, like, thank you. I needed to be snapped out of that. And these guys come and attack him and they say, wait a second, are you on Baal's side? Watch what he says here. Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Hey, if he's so powerful, you guys worship him. If he's a god, it's almost like the light bulb went off. He's like, whoa, what just happened here? What have I been doing? It's like clarity happened. All of a sudden, the truth showed up, and it was done by Gideon. That first lily pad, Gideon didn't know what he was getting into. He goes, okay, I'm going to step out, and he does. He takes a couple guys with him, and guess what? He righted a wrong. Truth emerged, and it woke his father up, and he realized, wow, I've been wrong. It's a warning. I believe it's a warning to all of us. You know, we're in a pagan society now. Our culture, isn't it? We are living in one of the most, well, not the most in history, I'm sure, but we have seen our culture change drastically in the last few years for sure. But even in years past, we've seen the pattern of where this country is headed, our culture, our society. And man, if we're not vigilant, if we're not careful, we can become susceptible to things that we would have never dreamed we'd be involved in. I believe it's a warning for all of us. Don't be bombarded by the lies. Yeah, you know, it's Pride Month. <laughs> they had to pick June. My birth month. Really? Well, couldn't they have picked October? What's going on in October? Halloween. Perfect. Someone else's birthday. Who, by the way, whose birthday is in October? One, two, three. Fine. I'll take it. But we're seeing things that are before our eyes that are not just wrong, but we're seeing things that are almost downright blasphemous. The rainbow used to mean God's promise. You know what? It still does. The rainbow means God's promise that he would never again destroy the world by water. That's a promise. And it used to be when you saw that, that's what you think. What do you think when you see a rainbow now? It's twisted. It's sad. We've got to remind ourselves, nope, nope, nope. That's not what that means. What it really means is God's promise to us. But it's blasphemy. And we're living in that culture. And we can find ourselves, if we're not vigilant, 
and being in God's word and knowing the truth, don't fall susceptible. Stay on task. Stay close to the Lord. Thirty-two. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, "Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar." Now, watch this. We're starting to heat things up here. Starting to heat things up here. The Midianites are coming back on the scene. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So it's time for another attack. They all get together, and it's time to mount up, and let's go in and see what they got for us. Verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. Let's go back to the first part of that verse. What happened? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You read all through the Old Testament where that happened. The Spirit of the Lord came upon you know what that is? That's being baptized, literally baptized with the Holy Spirit. What happens when that takes place? It's like God gives you a directive, and it seems impossible, but then the Holy Spirit comes upon you to what? To carry out that directive. He helps you. He comes alongside, and he helps you with that task. It's a beautiful thing. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blows the horn. The war call is made, and people begin to answer. Verse 35, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came to meet them. So Gideon said to God, now watch this. You can't talk about Gideon without talking about the fleece. You guys know the story. We're getting into it. Gideon says, if you, will have, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He lays a fleece before the Lord. What he's asking for is, Clarity, clarification or confirmation. Let's continue. Verse 38, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Okay, so that worked. But now Gideon's like, okay, but one more thing, Lord. Don't be angry. Don't be angry with me. But let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. A couple things we're seeing here. Does this mean that Gideon doesn't trust God? I don't believe so. Some might look at that story and go, and if it stands on its own, they would say, oh, well, he, he had trust issues. He didn't trust God. I don't believe that's true. Why? Because he's already been in communication with the Lord. He's received clear direction from the Lord, and he's already been obedient 
you have to remember there's something going on here that is vast. He is about to take his own brethren with him into battle against a very fierce, brutal enemy. Is it okay to pause for just a minute, take a couple steps back, zoom out, and ask for confirmation from the Lord? Absolutely. And that's what I love about this. We ask the Lord for confirmation all the time, do we not? Lord, I've heard your voice. Did I hear you correctly? Lord, show me. Provide the resources for me. If this is of you, please make it so obvious that I can't miss it because I can miss a lot. Okay, the blockhead that I am, I can miss a lot. Lord, you got to just hit me upside the head with clarity. Please give me confirmation before I step out into this. Is that okay? Absolutely. I truly believe that because that is what our hero today is doing. This man of valor. Valor? What? The guy that was in the wine press, knees shaken, scared to death of the enemy, running off to caves hiding? Yeah, that guy. Why? Because God sees him of who he's going to be. But it's going to happen with God using him, an obedient, willful servant doing the work of the Lord. Something that would have been completely and totally impossible in his own power. He says, I'm going to use you. But here's another thing we see too. The patience of the Lord. The Lord is willing to go there with him. Oh, you doubt me? I'll find someone else. Is that the Lord? No. That's not the Lord I serve. The Lord says, okay, I'll do that. I'll make it wet and the ground dry. You wake up, oh, wow, got a bowl full of water out of that thing. Okay, but Lord, um, now do the opposite. Now I'll make it dry and the ground wet. Lord's like, okay, I'll do that for you too. He's patient. And he is patient with you and I, is he not? Have you seen that in your life? God is so patient. He's so good. He's got a plan for you, and he knows how we are. He knows our human condition, and we don't see things clearly, and we like to have things laid out and planned out. We like to see all the lily pads, and we, that all has to work for us, and, and then so by stepping out and things to the unknown is unnatural to us. He knows that. He knows we have willing hearts. He knows we want to be obedient, but he's willing to work with Gideon here. He says, okay. I'll do that for you. We're about to see another lily pad jump up here. Now it's the big thing, the big battle, what we've all been waiting for. Chapter 7, verse 1. Would you go there with me? Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon. Remember, his dad gave him that name. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Remember the call went out, the trumpet, the war call. And about 32,000 people, 32,000 men answered that call. That sounds like a lot. But when you compare that to what historians and theologians believe, the Midianite army was 135,000. So, hey, what's uh, Gideon? Hey, what's the tally? What do we got? Uh, 32,000. Okay. Oh, boy. That's a problem. You think he was scared? 
Did he have a right to be fearful? He's going up against 135,000 vicious, brutal enemy, and he's got 32,000. Okay, he says. So they go out. You know what the ratio would be? Four to one. Each one of the children of Israel, each one of these men would have had to kill four. It was four to one ratio. Now, it seems like, okay, let's just pretend that that skirts along the outside of the possibility of the realm of possibility and that that would actually be possible. Maybe if these guys were just like seasoned soldiers, that seems maybe possible. Most likely these guys were all farmers and didn't really know much about warfare, but they answered the call. Four to one odds. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. What? That was my bad ear, Lord. (laughs) I thought for a second there, I thought you said I had too many because I only have 32,000. Yeah, it's too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Watch this. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, my own hand has saved me. Remember what we talked about? What we talked about a minute ago was the underlying issue of this whole story is that God gets the glory, not you. Why? Because it's not about you. Remember, we learned that. Gideon, oh, but me, I can't even, I'm just a, it's not about you, Gideon. It's about what I'm going to do. It's about me. And so these four to one odds, oh yeah, you got too many, buddy. Okay, so Gideon's already fearful. Now what do you think happened to his fear? When he's told he's got too many. It probably increased, I'm willing to bet, if he's a normal human man about to go do something very incredibly impossible. Yeah, the Lord says, you know, if you win with these odds, you're going to say that you did it. Can't have that. Verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. Okay, don't say it too loud. I don't want anyone hearing this. Hey, uh, if you're afraid, you can go home. Oh, well, 22,000 heard. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Oh, no. It was already bad enough. I had 32,000, which isn't nearly enough. God said, that's too many. Can't let you win that. You'll claim victory for yourself. Said, you did it. So let's knock out another, you know, 22,000. What, Lord? What are the odds now? 14 to 1. Now each man has to kill 14 men. Does that sound possible? We just left the outer skirts of realm of possibility, and now we're off into the no way. No, we're not even on the same planet. You're like, okay, okay, Lord, we're good, right? No. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Excuse me? Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the the same shall go with you. 
And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought, him, he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. So this is the test. All these guys, they got to go get water. They're thirsty out there in the middle of nowhere. They, they go to the water and a couple of things. The division is going to be how they approach the water. So the guys that get down there and put their lips to the water, oblivious to their surroundings and drink from the water. And then there's the other group who actually goes down and kneels down and brings it up with his hand. And he's aware of his surroundings and, and drinks while he's vigilant. That's the division. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300, what was that? 300. By the 300 men who have lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Wait a second. Started off with 32,000, got down to 10,000, and now I have 300. Who's really good at math? You know what the odds are now? We started off with four to one. That's not great, but mm, I don't know. If they're seasoned or ever been in a fight, perhaps. Then went to 14 to one. Yeah, that's a probably, probably not happening. You know what the odds are now? 450 to one. Each man has to kill 450 men. Is that possible? We can all shake, no. Not in the power of man. And God says, okay, those are the odds I was looking for. I like those odds. 450 to 1. You know, it's interesting, too, because we've seen those odds before. Remember Elijah against the 450 prophets of Baal? He went up against them. That, that's nothing to the Lord. This has happened before. We've seen this. 450 to 1, not good for man, but great for the Lord. Verse 8, so the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands and sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and re retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. What does it say there? They grabbed swords and spears and knives and daggers, and they went, no. Provisions, okay, so they grabbed snacks. Hey, if you're leaving, uh, let me have the Twinkies there. Yeah, I need some of that. Oh, and uh, trumpets. We're going to go kill them with decibels in their ear. What's going on here? It sounds like a God thing. Let's find out. Verse 9. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But watch this. Here's the Lord. I know you're afraid. Okay, the Lord would say, I get that. Okay, it was already bad at first because I gave you 32,000. And then I took another 22,000. And then I got you down to 300. I get you're afraid. Okay, I understand that. He knows the human condition. Would you be afraid? No, you'd be terrified. 
I would be. Now, here's the thing about these 300 men, and I don't want to miss this because I think this is important. You know, we, we picture in our minds these, the vision of these 300 men. And these are like the tip of the spear, the Navy SEALs of the day, these 300 warriors. And man, they're vigilant. They're warriors. They, they look around and they know they could be attacked at any time. So they get down there and they, they drink, looking around. They could be lurking. I'm ready. We do the same thing with guys like Samson, don't we? In our mind's eye, we see Samson as like this Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Or Arnold back in the day when he was winning bodybuilding competitions, Lyle Alzado. More recently, Jay Cutler, these bodybuilders just yoked. And we, in our mind's eye, we see Samson like that, right? You see that guy? He ripped those gates out of the ground and the rods and the posts and everything threw my shoulders and marched off with them. You see, well, yeah, do you see him? He's massive. A couple guys over in the corner going, yeah, he ain't natty either. <laughs> Indeed, Samson wasn't natty. For those of you who don't know, natty is a euphemism in bodybuilding, weightlifting for natural. See a big old dude walk into the gym He's all yoked out, totally jacked. Bench is 1,000 pounds. Guys are like, that ain't natty. There's some additives on board, if you know what I mean. <laughs> no. And Samson wasn't natty either. No, he didn't have steroids on board, but he had the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about that? The Holy Spirit would come upon him, and he'd rise up, and he would just do these incredible superhero feats that no one could possibly do, and he made it look easy. Here's the deal. We picture The Rock, and he'd probably look more like Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> What's up, guys? But when the Holy Spirit showed up, man, he was ripping things apart, pulling gates out of the ground, hiking with them on his shoulder, ripping lions in half. I mean, the guy is insane. And guys look at that and go, Pee-wee, how did he do that? There's only one way. The Holy Spirit was on board. God used him in a mighty way. The things that were impossible, these impossible feats, and I look at these 300 men, I'm like, oh my gosh, they must have been Navy SEALs. The fact of the matter is probably there are probably old fat guys who had big old bellies and blown out backs and bad knees who couldn't jump down there like the spry young guys in the push-up position and put their lips on the water. They're probably like, no! Ah! Oh. And, and Gideon's like, Lord, those guys? These young guys jump down and do push-ups while they're drinking, and I got to send them home? I got, I got the old fat guys, which I would qualify. Where are we going, Thunder? Let's go get them. I'm not being dogmatic about this. This is not something that's probably fact. I just know how the Lord works. He uses the simple to confound the wise, and he uses the weak to show his strength. And we feel weak sometimes, huh? I'm a simple man. Don't have to be too complex with me. I get it. You throw meat and potatoes in front of me, and I'm all there. I'm simple. I don't eat caviar. The Lord uses the simple to confound the wise. He uses the weak-looking guy 
to do these incredible feats. These old blown out fat dudes. And he's going to go take on an army. Incredible. God is amazing. So not good odds for man. Great, great odds for the Lord. And it happened that same night that the Lord said to him, Arise and go down. I've delivered Midian into your hand. Verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp. Excuse me. Go to the camp with Pura, your servant. Verse 11. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now, that's interesting. Him and his servant, they kind of go into this, like, mission, and they want to get some intel. Verse 12, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts. Here we go again, completely outnumbered. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. Can't even count them. So many, so vast. I'm sure that made Gideon feel even better now that he sees them. Oh, boy. And I got these 300 guys. Verse 13, and when Gideon had come there with a man telling a dream to his companion, he said, I have had a dream. These two Midianites are talking, and the one guy said, hey, I, I had a dream, and it kind of disturbed me. Well, what's up? He says, he said, I ha um, excuse me, I have had a dream, and to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. That's interesting. And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Interesting how it would be a loaf of barley. That was the lowest of the low barley. Now they say white bread's bad for you, and I don't believe that. I love white bread. It's the best. But at any rate, barley was the low of the low. It was for slaves and animals. But Gideon's okay with that. He's not offended. What? I'm not a flaming boulder rolling it? No. You're just a, a loaf of barley rolling in. But the tent collapses, and this is the dream. But here's what the answer is. The interpretation, verse 14. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel into a man of Israel into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. What? How do these guys know about Gideon? You have to remember a couple of things. They were pagans. They were very superstitious. They worshiped gods. And all of the lies and things that go in behind the scenes of that whole endeavor, they were very suspicious of even each other. They fought amongst themselves, various tribes and groups. So these people find out that this guy, Gideon, goes up and stands up to Baal, a god, and defeats him and strikes him down. Who's that guy? Their suspicions start running wild. They're fearful. They're fearful. The tables have kind of turned. Now they're struck with fear. Gideon hears this. He's like, oh, this is interesting. They're not like, yeah, I hope he comes in here. Bring it. We're going to tear him up. No, it's not that. 
It's the exact opposite. They're filled with fear. They hear of this guy. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. Oh, he's on the right track. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of the Midian, camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand and an empty, uh, with empty pitchers and torches inside these pitchers. You guys know the story. A trumpet in one hand and a, a flaming torch in the other inside of a pitcher. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord uh, and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So middle of the night, just as they had posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the 300 companies blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zira, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. Wow. An amazing strategy. Where's the swords and spears? Uh, we don't have any. But we got some snacks, uh, a trumpet, and here, here's this clay thing with a torch burning in it. Don't break that till I tell you. Incredible strategy. Why? Because it was customary for armies of the day, it was not uh, an unknown thing that a thousand, uh, a thousand soldier unit may be led by one torch. So get the picture here. It's the middle of the night. Everyone's asleep except for the watch. They just changed watch. So everyone's settling in. Okay. <sighs> and everyone's out. And all of a sudden they hear a bunch of glass breaking. And they hear all this yelling and screaming and trumpets going and, and the, the sword of the Lord and, and of Gideon. And they go, what? And they get up and they come running out to see what's going on. And all they see is they're surrounded by torches, which in their mind, each torch represents a thousand soldiers. So all of a sudden, this 135,000 soldier army is surrounded by, in their minds, 300,000. How cool is that? And what do they do in their suspicion? They're like, this is a setup. And they start looking at each other and they grab their swords. And what does it say? They turned against their own companion inside the camp. They annihilated themselves. And those who were left over fled and ran away. Not very good odds, 450 to 1. Doesn't matter to the Lord. Not one bit. Gideon gets the victory. Amazing story. How on earth would you have told this guy a few days prior who's hiding, knees quaking and shaking, grinding out the grain in a wine press away from his enemy? Hey, in a few days, you're going to lead your people against the army of the Midianites, and you're going to be victorious. No way. Yes way. Because I'm Yahweh. 
and I'm going to do it my way. So I get the glory. You know what the story of Gideon tells us a few things. It encourages us to get moving, even when the vision is not yet clear. The Lord might have something on your heart right now. He might be telling you, hey, I want you to do this, or I want you to go here. I want you to interview for this job. I want you to buy this house. I want you... See, Gideon's resources were dwindling before his eyes. Do you feel that way? Lord, I want to do all this, but if you're going to have me do this, you've got to provide you got to provide the resources. Lay that fleece out before the Lord. The vision wasn't clear, but guess what? Gideon was willing, and he was obedient to take those steps. Am I willing? Am I obedient? Do I have to have it all laid out, or can I take it one lily pad at a time? It also encourages us to keep seeking clarity. That's what Gideon did. When fear arose, Lord, what now? And God spent considerable time with Gideon to do a few things. One, assure him and prepare him for the work ahead. This is my encouragement to you. Oh, there's a ton of plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord that directs your steps. And you might have had everything all planned out. A lot of things happening in the life of uh, the Drowned family here pretty soon. We got a lot of life things changing. You perhaps do too. You may have had a ton of plans. These are the things that I want to do. Lord bless them. And he says, "Hmm, no. Your plan B is my plan A. And we're going to do things my way. My encouragement is... Be obedient. You're willing. Be obedient. Trust God. And that's what he wants. And then when all of these things happen, everything, what the Lord promised, this is what I want you to do, and that happens, guess what? You get to look back, and what do you see? The plan. Now you see all of the lily pads. You see them in reverse. God saw them forward. You had no idea. You were asking for clarity. God was patient with you, gives you the clarity. He's just saying, hey, trust me. I'm going to do an awesome work in your life, and I'm going to use you in ways you would have never. Imagined. Never. He loves you that much. So be willing, hear his voice, be obedient, get moving, step out in faith, trust your God. He loves you so much. And look back and see the plan all at once and you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed. That's the heart of the Lord.